Welcome to the Future of Processes podcast. I'm Ben Merton, CEO of Unifies, and each week I'll be talking to people in manufacturing about what it really takes to bring products to life. So this is about building an organizational culture, leadership, product design, supply chain, change management, how to attract the best talent, and in particular, how we can create better, more human processes for the factories of tomorrow. I'm joined today by Greg Ayres, who runs Operational Excellence at Innovative Hearth Products, which is a manufacturer of indoor and outdoor fireplaces headquartered in Nashville, but with manufacturing facilities in Alabama, California, and Washington. Welcome to the show, Greg. Thank you, Ben. I'm glad to be here. This is fantastic. Look forward to it. So can you just tell us a little bit of background about what motivated you to get into Operational Excellence Continuous Improvement in the first place? I guess 87, I decided I was working in the computer room and Heatcraft and kept wondering about, man, why didn't I finish college? Because I see all these reports that come through the computer room and all the different stacks of data and how it was all integrated. You know, you had production control and you had material control and you had inventory control and you had all these maintenance reports. And so all these massive amounts of data were just coming through this nerve center on the weekends. And I was trying to reconcile all that and take them so they would have them all for Monday mornings. And so it kind of lit a fire. From there, I went to the engineering room and I got a mentor named Dr. Young Lib Bay, PhD, and he worked a lot on research. And so he spent a lot of time mentoring me and he really got me to go back to college. So I went back to college in industrial technology and management. So I jumped right into quality engineering. And so quality engineering, I'm in a year, I'm learning how to do ISO, trying how to be an auditor, how the ISO system works. And lo and behold, Hayworth, the company I work for, they brought in a lean consultant. And so we started talking about 5S, seeing how you could take the data and take all these enormous amounts of data and you could plug them in and you could make a a factory improve. And it was always the small things. And so it's always intrigued me. You worked in furniture manufacturing, packaging, mining and metals, building materials, steel. These are all these different companies. Do you see there being a difference that you've come across in implementing continuous improvement from industry to industry, or has it kind of all been the same methods? It really depends on the engagement of the senior leadership as an expectation to get better. Because if somebody reads a book, and this is not really axe grinding, it's just a couple of stops I've been in where, hey, man, I think well did lean, kind of like that. And like, you understand what lean means, really? I mean, what are you trying to do? And so they're in an expectation. So you you hire a guy with some strong credentials and you hope that he can figure out the art of the buy-in and you try to manage it sideways and it goes nowhere. So I guess what you're saying is it's down to leadership, right? It's such an interesting one. In the uh, different areas that you work within as well, because I notice you've been in different roles within these companies, you've not just worked in continuous improvement, but also operations, quality management, maintenance. How important do you feel it is to have a wide exposure to these different functions in order to be good at actually getting lean initiatives to work? Well, I mean, I've been very fortunate that people have have plugged me into certain roles. They found a certain strength or something of mine. But to me, it's really great because I've got this very broad background. I can see things from an operations perspective where I have so much to get. I can see things from an engineering perspective where I have to try to make a process as robust as possible on the front end so that I'm not spending a lot of time over-processing. I'm just trying to drive into what the customer says. So. Yeah, I'm very fortunate. And I think that does make a good leader. If you've got somebody that's been seasoned in your organization, who's kind of flexible, 
that, you know, sometimes you're a production manager, sometimes you're a maintenance manager, sometimes you're a Kaizen leader, sometimes you're a plant engineer. I've been very fortunate and it does help because I can speak to a lot and I can get that collaboration that we all want. Do you have any common threads that we can talk about in terms of what it is about the leader that makes continuous improvement either easier or harder to implement? Is it just a fad like you described there where suddenly, you know, a board initiative comes out or somebody from outside of the organization is suddenly sitting there saying, well, we need to do this. Is that it? Or is, are there other things that we can use to isolate those traits that we see in, in leaders that give you an indication of the success or failure of a given continuous improvement project? Definitely, it has to be driven toward a metric or a standard. For me, the more successful senior leadership, when they drive it into the organization, is look, guys, we're trying to take a $30 million Grife business system. McKinsey came in and said, we need $36 million in savings, was kind of the selling point over two years to implement the Grife business system. And so until I have a tangible fixed number that I can see the senior leadership is going after, a lot of it becomes faddish and it's very hard to sustain it because it loses its steam. It's like, wow, man, we had four Kaizen events. But what were those four Kaizen events for? Was it for the fact that we wanted to lower our instant rate of, for safety? Is it the fact that we had a high scrap rate in a certain area? We didn't know exactly what the problem was. Yeah, you can see guys that want to impress people. They want to talk in terms like, yeah, we're going to do a CAIS event and we're going to work on this area and we're going to work on that area. Okay, what are we doing it for? What's stakeholders claim? So when you talk about building consensus, what is it we're trying to improve? What is it we're trying to drive into the organization? What is it that we need to move? What needle needs to move? Do we just need to do it to show somebody to your point of we showed the board of directors that, hey, man, we give out T-shirts and we have meals and we celebrate But at the end of the day, we're back like we were. Do you have any specific examples of where you've seen leadership go down the route of faddishness resulting in a failed objective or goal? Uh, specific instance, when I jumped into uh, the cabinet industry, they had strapping machines in series at the end of these production lines. And it was a huge downtime event. And so we had some pull forwards, they call them a career orientation development leaders, and they were the future of the company. And so they brought them in to plug them into our Kaizen events. And so, okay, we're going to do a Kaizen event on the strapping machine. That's what my plant manager wanted me to do. He wanted to improve uptime on these production lines. And it was a common problem across all assembly plants for America Woodmark. So it had a lot of visibility and it was a great metric. It was uptime, OEE. It was a great metric. So we come in and their cods, they wanted to paint the machine and cut out some Lexan viewing doors so they could actually see the the internal process going on. I'm like, no, we need to do a process map first so we can understand what the failure modes on these strappers are. So we're limited on a timeline. You know, Monday you come in, you define it. Tuesday's action, Wednesday's action, Thursday morning's action, Thursday afternoon you clean it up, Friday morning you present it in a typical Kaizen event. So there was all this expectation of we were going to make this huge move and change the world within a week. Perfectly good idea. We're going to get the uptime up. Great. The strapper failed within the first three cycles. Once we got it out and we had all the high visibility, we had a lot of the senior leadership come to our plant to look at this. So from a failed Kaizen event, we didn't lose sight of the fact that there was uptime that we're going after, which is productivity dollars, which is huge. So there it became a Six Sigma event because we were launching Six Sigma at the same time. But you could see this consistency or passion to improve and this money behind it. 
versus this guy that flies out and he comes back and it's like, you know what? I think we need to do an event based on what I read about last week. And really you're losing that sting and it's really hard to sustain it. And it's really hard to get collaboration and buy-in because nobody buys into what's going on, but everybody buys into, I'm tired of my strapper machine being down. I'm tired of having to fix them every night on second and third shift so we can run them on day shift. I'm tired of it costing me four to five points of productivity a model a month. And that 1% or one point is how many thousands of dollars in labor. So yeah, to me, it, it all comes back to expectation and drive and knowing what you're going to. And sometimes where I've seen the failure is people that just want to do something to get something off their back, but they haven't thought it all the way through. They haven't seen where it can drive an organization. Yes, that doesn't sound like a recipe for success. Now, as far as your current role is concerned, what is the most painful process that you are dealing with at the moment? Here, 207 first aid and beyond instance in the last five years, eight months has driven me crazy. So I'm pounding through that. I'm trying to find out 46% of these injuries happen within somebody that's been here six months. Changing the safety paradigm right now is a huge process because it's been, I hurt somebody, I'll take them up front, those guys will do their magics or whatever, and then this employee will come back to me in 10 days, but I'm mad at you because they're hurt. I didn't hurt them. If you don't take care of your employees, they can't take care of you. So it's that mentality of, well, it's hurt, I'll just go get a temp. So now I've got to invest training. There's all these things. So that's a very frustrating paradigm right now as to why do we get hurt? So other than EHS, can you tell me a bit more about some of the other metrics that you have at the moment? Well, I'm in innovative horse products. I left for about seven months to be a director of operations and I got homesick. And so I just happened to tell the HR manager that, hey, this isn't working out. This isn't what I thought it would be. So they brought me back. Our CEO said, come back and we're going to make you the op excellence manager. We're going to let you do EHS because we need to get arms around EHS. Also, we need for you to be over CI and we need for you to help build businesses. And so I spent a lot of time in EHS to try to get it defined as to what's going on with there. Also, in the meantime, our COO has come up with a system called Peak Performance Excellence and Knowledge where we're basically trying to tie into a business system similar to what Grife did. So I'm trying to tap into the four aspects of getting the business, doing the business, running the business, and guiding the business. Well, I've got to take it up a layer to see what our strategic leadership wants to do. So what's our mission statement? And a lot of that is superior employee and customer experiences. And try to play on that into our fireplaces. You have Y as a function of X. I always go back to Y as a function of X. And so we talk about these inputs. So what does it take to have a superior employee experience, you know? from a safety aspect, from a retention aspect, or we live in our core values aspect, but also from the customer standpoint. There was a comment that you've made up on LinkedIn recently about the Japanese company that had switched from plastic to not using plastic, which you'd appreciate it. I'm interested in what you're doing at Innovative Hearth to build an environmental focus into your own continuous improvement metrics, if anything. Right now, trying to define it because it's my weakness. Environmental is probably the weakest thing that I've done. So I'm trying to catch up on, okay, what type of permits do I need? What type of waste streams do I have? Why do I have these waste streams? So you have to start asking those big questions. And so that's where I'm at right now. I'm trying to get my arms around, why do we use acetone? It's specific. Why do I use acetone? Isn't there a green alternative? And 
we've used acetone because that's what the former leader said. And, and before that, I used acetone. And I'm like, well, you know, there's a lot more green alternatives right now. So, yes, Ben, exactly. What are we doing? First of all, I'm trying to define what is my waste? What are my permits say? What is my cost? And how do I mitigate these things? And so the first one in Hascom is acetone. Why am I using acetone to wipe down metal right now? There's plenty of alternatives to this. But we've got to ask those questions. If not, we just continue to go on and on and on and on and on. I use that story when I do lean training. I used the granny pan very early on into because we've always done it that way. So there was this new married couple and this young man loved a roast dinner on Sundays. And so one of the things in the dating process is it became very obvious to the bride to be that she needed to, when it it became time for them to be married, that she needed to make sure that there was a great roast dinner, either at her mom's house or she needed to figure out how to do it. So she approached her mother about how to make a roast. Her mom went through everything for her. She bought the same type pan her mom had, and she followed the work instructions or the standard work, if we call it, if we're going, we're going to throw our, our buzzwords into this. Her output was this roast dinner and the new son slash son-in-law was underwhelmed. Yeah, that's pretty good. But he didn't tell them what was wrong. He didn't set the expectation. Well, it upset her because she, you know, it's brand new. They're married. She's trying to meet her customer's expectation or her new husband's expectation. So again, back to the client-provider relationship. The provider is failing to meet the client's expectations. So granny gets involved. So the granny's out there and she cooks it and so they're at granny's house eating. And again, now that you have three generations who are looking to the husband, son-in-law, or grandson-in-law, and he's like, you know, I appreciate this, but I'm going to be honest with you. It's just too dry. Okay, there was a variable that wasn't defined in the process at first. And so it's like, yeah, I see where you cut the ends of your roast off and you cut it in half to fit it in the pan. And he said, it's just dry. And she said, well, yeah, I've had this pan this whole time and, and it's not big enough for the roast. And so again... There's this transfer in the process that there wasn't a clear expectation to find. He just wanted a cool roast dinner. And so the difference in pan size is between his mom and through the generations of the bride. And so I see that a lot. You know, we use acetone because, well, that's what I used when the California operation, or that's what I used in the Union City, Tennessee operation. Okay, well, we're in Russell, Alabama, and we're in Auburn, Washington. So... To your point about, yeah, when we make these transitions to be more environmental friendly, if nothing else, more employee friendly to get rid of the acetone and the specific PPE, the engineered stuff that you have to have. Why do we do that? And so I'm with you. You know, it's interesting. What I want to understand from you is in the context of the future of processes, what do you think your day-to-day life is going to look like 10 years from now? This is a great learning ground for me to figure out how to drive it from almost like a control panel. The time on the floor is huge, but I need to be able to understand it kind of like an air traffic controller. I need to be able to see all my movement objects. I need to be able to understand, all right, what are my EHS metrics? What are my cost support quality metrics? I need to know internally and externally why my cost of goods doesn't meet my expectations from an op standpoint. I need to understand if I've got a bill of material that says this and that results in a margin of that, how come when at the end of the day, I'm not meeting what my projections are? And I need to be able to see that 
in a real-time basis if I can, if that makes sense to you. I need to understand if my labor earn is there. I need to understand if it's taking me longer to build it or it costs more to produce it because I have some form-fit function issues. So I need to see how my scrap and my labor. Optimization of data, visualization, yes. analytics, being able to see more of that type of stuff. Do you think that's what's going to happen? Or do you think this is just something that you hope will happen? <laughs> I think it has to happen. I hope there's a lot of people that are maybe more educated than I am that are driving this and saying, guys, this is the selling point. You have a lot of people that are working in silos that are working very hard and they're getting very frustrated and they're getting very burnt out because this message isn't getting out because they don't know how to frame it. It's out of context with the overall arching of we're trying to drive toward, we're trying to drive out clean or continuous improvement. We're trying to drive out waste. So waste is loss, loss of something. Again, right now, guys, you understand that every time somebody leaves here and goes to a treatment center, that's a X amount of money that's coming off the top line or that's showing up in a workman's comp. So that's driving off the bottom line. And so if nobody's seeing this overarching analytics where they tie together, they're just hearing a guy crying in the night that, hey, I've got a problem. Hey, I've got a problem. We do have a problem. But if you don't see this overall impact, you know, this big why we talk about, let's go right back to Six Sigma again. This big why, which is profit. Profit is a function of everything else that's going on. And those other things are your analytics. And so if I could somehow tie that together and if we could somehow get this message to everybody, yes, it is a process. And the result of the process is whatever that metric you want. And, and if it's why is equal to profit, all right, profit's equal to material costs, labor costs, overhead costs. Well, what are those costs? And then you start driving down into those buckets and those buckets start showing up on some type of scorecarding, you know, red, green, yellow. It's just huge. It eliminates so much meeting time. I can remember as a director, I've been meeting six hours a day, Ben. Your brain did. There's six different angles of attack. I'm trying to shift gears as rapidly as my meetings are trying to shift gears. And so I've got roughly four to six hours at the end of the day, when you're mentally taxed, you're trying to say, okay, so what was today all about? And how do I drive strategy based off of six independent sets of data? What context do I put that in so that I can understand if I'm improving, staying still, or am I falling behind? Yeah, that's good. So I have now the final round on this before we end this, which is what we call the rapid fire round. You have to answer each question in less than 60 seconds so that we can kind of chop it up. Okay. First question is, what is the most surprising thing you learned about continuous improvement and operational excellence during your career? How unaware leadership teams are, what's actually going on. So from a CI standpoint, when you get down into it and you start breaking down what they thought was a problem, you start seeing all the waste that's involved in their organization. That's just thought of as the cost of doing business and it really isn't it's just pure waste yeah it's interesting i agree completely how do you build a culture of continuous improvement you have to get the art and the buy-in you have to get some consensus you have to listen but you also have to listen to what all the expectations from whoever launched or chartered the event and also who is the end user of the event what are they going to gain from it? And so if you could kind of figure out what their hot buttons are, whatever the metrics are, their pain points are, and if you could specifically speak to those with this event, you could get more of the buy-in and you start getting wins, then the momentum starts swinging to your side. But again, it's consistency, it's collaboration, it's what's in it for them. 
And again, you really start off with bat and practice fastballs. If you can to start getting in, you've got to get the momentum on the side of the culture. How do you bridge the gap between so many different collaborating teams in innovative hearts, especially around Kaizen events, corrective actions, carpers, that sort of stuff? Well, it goes back to, I've got a, in front of me right now, I've got a board and it's got a sunrise chart. It's got the peak or the different elements of the business system. I'm in my mind, I'm trying to build what is the connection between the different departments. And I'm trying to get my sales for my pitch. I'm trying to figure out which metrics we're hurting on right now, because I can touch all parts of the organization. And then I try to get the benefit and I try to get collaboration. If it is a team we're launching where we're trying to attack something, I try to make sure that it's cross-functional. I either want somebody that's tactically in the fight down in the weeds, or I want the person that's the process expert, which is that operator. And I want to get that vocabulary going. Right. If you could change one thing about the way you work at Innovative Path, what would that be? So I wish I was better organized at my day. It's like for the first four hours of the day, I'm going to focus on the business system. Then I'm going to take a lunch. Then I'm going to spend a couple of hours on how do I plan the next continuous improvement event? Or how do I manage where I'm at? And then the last part of the day is safety or which one's first. But what I'll try to do is I'll try to tack them all at one time and you get derailed. So how would I back up? For me, it's, gosh, my Myers-Briggs is an ENTJ and I'm all over the place. So I wish I could slow down, become more structured, back to a software system. If I had a software system or a dashboard and I knew what was the most important thing right now, because to me, they're all important. But yeah, I need to have deliverables in all three areas each day to the best of my ability. Because even with my best schedule, my best plan, our days happen. You know that from manufacturing. You can come in with the best schedule in the world, but then your day happens. Yes. Then you have to scramble. And I don't do scrambling very well. I try to be a week to two weeks ahead, at least in my mind of where I want to go. And I have a vision. I'm trying to work to that vision. And then when I have to get into the day-to-day, hand-to-hand combat of the day, That's very frustrating for me. And some of that is if I could cut down on the time that I have to, when I tell you I need to break my day into three parts, if I had that dashboard that I could see my day or I could see the output, I could see the big why, I could see the run chart. If my plant was just one giant run chart or it was a series of run charts and I could see our trends, then I could really focus exactly where I needed to be at the right time. And uh, I'm not there yet. What do you think makes a great quality and continuous improvement leader? I think you need to have a passion to want to get better. I think it's just something innate in you that, and I get this a lot from, oh no, if you're satisfied with the data, then you're not satisfied. You're wrong. You can never be satisfied. I mean, you've got to understand your customer and you've got to look at things through their optics. If I've got to drive overtime out of a certain area, because it's hurting a certain metric, or if I'm missing a delivery date, because I've got to take that on and drive it. So what advice would you give to aspiring continuous improvement quality managers? Trust your data, listen to your customer. Also, listen to your internal customers, because they're being driven to produce, they're being driven to succeed, and sometimes they're very frustrated. So from a quality standpoint, if it's the fact that an internal supplier is failing to meet the expectations that another internal supplier, which is then driving an external metric, which is on-time delivery, you need to be able to, what are those metrics and that client-provider relationship? Also, it wouldn't hurt anybody to get in this area to, to learn the top 10 quotes of Takichi Ono. I mean, it's huge things. Like if you've got too much inventory, you don't have the right inventory. 
without a standard, it could be no Kaizans. If you're satisfied with the data, then you're not going to be satisfied. And it's just those type things that launched the TPS. And again, that was driven. I mean, that's off of Deming, that's off of Ono. And so, yes, I mean, trust the data, listen to the customer. Great, Greg. Well, this has been fantastic to have you on the podcast. And thank you so much for your time. I will be getting back to you, obviously, as soon as possible with a recording of this. But thank you for being with me today. I've enjoyed it. I probably talked your head off. But yeah, it's a passion for me, man. And again, it's, just, it's cool that I'm allowed to do these things. I actually get paid to do stuff that I enjoy. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Future of Processes podcast. I've really enjoyed talking to Greg Ayers from Innovative Hearth about the importance of getting leadership to define clear metrics for continuous improvement goals and a future where those metrics are easily visualized in real time. For more discussions on the future of processes, please visit futureofprocesses.com. Alternatively, if you'd like to talk to me directly, feel free to email me at ben at futureofprocesses.com. Finally, please also share this with anyone in your organization that you think might benefit from it. See you next week.